0: As I said, I've titled this morning's devotion. It's more of a devotion than a a full-on message, but we're going to call it uh, Shadow or Substance, Which Would You Prefer? And I'll begin by uh, asking the question, really, what is the value of a shadow? We do know that uh, the oldest employment of a, of a shadow to help humankind really came all the way back like uh, 3500 BC, even perhaps as late as 1500 BC with the employment of the sundial. And so as uh, the Egyptians can take credit for it, the Babylonians can take credit for it, with the sundial there came the ability uh, to place uh, uh, an object up and it would be the the light of the sun hitting that object, throwing a shadow on what the uh, early engineers had developed as a circle that represented uh, the hours within a day. And so time began to be measured through the, the use of shadow. Uh, we also know in... Uh, Jonah chapter 4 that Jonah took pleasure in the shadow of a great plant that God had made for him to deliver what was happening to his forehead to deliver him from his misery. And so uh, the value of a shadow provided great shade for Jonah. We also know that the definition really of a shadow is that it is something caused, as I gave illustration a moment ago, it is something caused by the interception of light. Okay, so there's an object, and light hits that object, and that light is intercepted, therefore causing a shadow. Jesus talked about... uh, People who lived in the shadow of death. Matthew chapter 4, he said, A people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. And so, the author in Hebrews talks greatly about... um, the value and the application of a shadow in uh, Scripture, but more importantly, in the life of the people of God. A couple of verses I'll share with you. Hebrews 8, we're told that the Old Testament priests, as it related to outward things they did and observances, Hebrews 8, 5, that since uh, there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things." In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that what they were doing was like the shadow of heavenly things that are really going on. The same author goes on in Hebrews 9, tells us in verse 8 and 9 of Hebrews 9 that the Holy Spirit, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, that it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered which cannot make him who performs those services perfect in regard to conscience. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 8 and 9. In other words, though there was an action going on, the action that was going on, the offering of gifts and sacrifices, was still unable to make the one performing that action perfect in the eyes of God and in their conscience The same author goes on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, to say this, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. And so the Apostle Paul, in his writing, to the believers in Colossae, employs this fact about the difference between the shadow and the substance. We read it there in uh, verse 17. He said, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And he makes it clear to the reader that there was a need in his desire to uh, educate and mature the believers there in Colossae, that there was a need to explain to them the truths of Christ because of the inclination toward outward observances and because of the threat of the heretical teaching of Gnosticism. You recall that just last week we, we dealt with his, you know, theological major stand toward them to help them understand that what the Gnostics were trying to feed them, the, the foul joke that. Uh, an imperfect God created an imperfect world and that there, there are these various ways to get to heaven that are secret and only a few know. And, and all this you know, theological garbage, really. And, and the Apostle Paul says, no. He says, in Christ. In him you are complete. We ended last week with verse 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. O oh, Colossian believer, you don't need to reach out and get some other secret, some other knowledge, some other thing. No, in Christ you're complete. And so he addresses the theological errors that were running around the the neighborhood, so to speak. And now he wants to address the practical errors that were running around that same neighborhood in the form of legalism. And so I back us up this morning to verse 11. As Paul is still talking about the person and the work of Jesus Christ to the true believer in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, In him you also, or you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. In other words... The Gentile did not need to follow uh, Judaism's rules and regulations to try to adhere to some form of uh, outward religious action that would make them acceptable in the eyes of Judaism's leaders. Because Paul was reminding them that, no, Christ came, placed himself on a cross willingly died and took the penalty of sin and gave us a new covenant by which that covenant now who place their faith in christ are made righteous in the eyes of god because of the blood of jesus not an outward action of any kind constitutes a righteous standing in the eyes of the father ever again since the cross of Calvary. In his letter to the Romans, Paul told them in Romans uh, 2, 28 and 29, that the Jew is not one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And what was the Jew of that day? The Jew of that day was the one inhuman society that was carrying the truth of the one true living God and was to be a witness to the world of that God and who that God is. And so now the Christian, the one who comes to faith in Christ is to, has been given the mantle in the New Testament to take up, go you into all the world and make disciples of all men, be a witness for the Son of God, about the one true living God in the power of the Holy Spirit of God uh, and do this as unto me, the Lord was saying. It's not an outward act that makes you right or not right. He also deals with the outward action of baptism. Notice verse 12. He says, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now what's beautiful about this is though in Judaism it was necessary, in Christianity it is not necessary. I'm speaking of circumcision as as something needed as we come to the subject of baptism, Jesus transformed that. Because in Paul's day and in that community of, of uh, Jewish societies, the only ones that really baptized, the only ones that really entered into water for the sake of what would be constitute spiritual cleansing... Were really those um, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees? You remember down in um, Qumran? There were, we we've been over there, uh, had the privilege of going over there, and found these clay bathtubs carved into the ground, and and they only the spiritual elite would use these tubs filled with water for what would be constituted ritualistic cleansing. Supposedly getting closer to God through the entering of some water. Now what did Jesus do when John the Baptist was out in uh, Judea baptizing at the Jordan River, right? It was transforming that whole mindset that water baptism is only for the spiritual elite. John the Baptist was calling everyone uh, make straight the way of the Lord. Now is the day of salvation. And people were coming in droves because this meant, if I do this, I'm, I'm declaring another greater devotion unto God. And so people were entering the Jordan River, John's baptizing, and out of the bushes, or however you want to explain it, comes who? Jesus Christ. And he walks up to John and he says, I have need of you to baptize me so that the scriptures are fulfilled. Why? Because Jesus was going to take this very act that at one time was relegated to only the spiritual elite and say, this now will be part of the New Testament of which my my death, burial, and resurrection is going to identify with the waters of baptism for everyone who believes. And Paul states it right here in verse 12 that when you enter and I enter, a believer enters that water. They are buried with him in baptism in which they are also raised with him through faith in the working of God. Today, if someone enters the water, we will go over with it. These scriptures, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and Romans 6, 3 and 4. And here's a paraphrase of what takes place in Romans uh, 6. Says that, do you not know that as many as of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should now walk in newness of life. Have you been baptized? Are you a Christian? Have you entered the water? Today we're gonna, you know, graciously have a place that's opened up and there's water. We could go to the lake, we usually do, on family camp. But if you are a Christian and have not entered the water, there is absolutely no reason for you not to. I love to tell the story, she probably won't mind. My granddaughter, Angie Kay, who gave her heart to the Lord at a young age. I think she may have even at one point done it here in a vacation Bible school as a small child. But this issue of baptism was always kind of gnawing on her. And there were many, many opportunities we would, as a family, give to her. And, and she'd come to church sometimes to see that there was an announcement. And just would not do that. And we'd always touch base with her. And, um, her and her sister, Morgan, ended up getting baptized up in Oregon at uh, Calvary Chapel in Corvallis. Uh, they were going to college. Morgan was engaged in college up there. And, and it was one Sunday, and they both just sensed God really ushering, you know, said, now's the moment. And we're like, oh, man, we should have been there. Wish we could have. They sent us a picture, you know, them both out of the water. But do you know what she did in between the time of knowing, saying yes to the Lord and the time of being baptized, which happened like a couple years ago? She would carry a bottle of water around in her purse. And I was like, Angie, what's the water for? She just, well, if I get in an accident or something, I know I'm going to die. I can just take the water real quick and sprinkle it on myself. <laughs> you what? Well, yeah, I just want to be sure, you know. It's precious because in her heart of hearts, she understood the beauty of water baptism and what it means to the believer. Paul makes it clear to the Colossians. When you enter that water, it's like entering the grave with Christ. Come up out of that water, it's like being raised with him from the dead. You might say, Okay, yeah, I've been baptized, but I still have a war with my own flesh. What's up with that? And to that, we simply respond and say, yes, we're in a war with our flesh until the day we die. That's when that war ends. And God uses that war with our flesh to shape and form us to be more likened unto the person of Christ in our dealings with other people here. Because until we came to faith, we all, he states it in verse 13, and you, to the Colossian believer he's telling, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all trespasses. Can you say amen? They're all forgiven. And he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Another truth of Christ that Paul needed to explain to the Colossians. The truth was that Christ took it. I love what uh, Wolford and Zuck uh, is a classic commentary set. And writes this regarding uh, the requirements against us, the handwriting. He says... This written code, speaking of the, the law of God, was like a handwritten certificate of debt. And since people cannot keep the law, it is like a bill of indebtedness that never goes away. So people are unable to pay the debt. People who are unable to pay their debt are criminals and Criminals are charged this certificate of indebtedness by his death. He goes on to say that it is as if he were nailing it to the cross with him, showing he paid the debt. He wiped the slate clean. Barry Stagner yesterday used this phrase, powerful phrase, that the secular world, their look, their view, their understanding, if you will, of the law of God, the laws of God, the commandments of God, right? Most Westerners have heard of the Ten Commandments. And so he used this phrase, I hadn't heard this before, but it was was an awakening to me as as well, that most people view the Ten Commandments as, quote, the Ten Moral Concepts of God Subject to Acceptance. And say that with me? The Ten Moral Concepts of God Subject to Acceptance. And the key there in the secular unbelieving world is that, yes, those are moral laws that evidently have come from a, a God of this thing you... Christians call the Bible, but they're subject to acceptance if I accept that moral law. And one professor, he told a story of one professor, uh, used to have this caption on his door, it said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And one day the professor just in an act of wisdom, he took a pen and he went to the front of the door and he scratched out, I believe it. And one of his students came up, I love this story. One of his students comes and says, Professor, Professor, why would you scrape out, I believe it? He says, well, think of it. God said it, that settles It doesn't matter if you believe it or don't believe it. God said it, that settles it doesn't matter if you believe it or don't believe it. It does not disregard the fact that God has said it. And you and I were dead in trespassing sins. We were criminals. And God took that charge against us and nailed it to the cross and said, debt paid. And when he did that and Joseph of Arimathea came along and took his body down and wrapped it and placed it in the tomb. And as the scripture so powerfully declares to us on the third day he rose again. There he speaks to Mary in the garden. And she's amazed. He walks with the two on the road to Emmaus, and, and they're all downtrodden because their Messiah, their Savior, is, is dead. And they're walking along, sad. And he's with them. He says, well, tell me, what is it you're so sad about? Have you been in Judea very long? Have you not heard? And they proceed to tell Jesus, all about Jesus. Except the fact that what they don't know is that he's there with them. And he declares to them, hey, that's me. Because in his resurrected state, Paul deals with it in verse 15. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. We're told in the scripture that had had Satan known what was going to happen by him seeking to put God's son upon a cross and have him die that they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. Had he known? It's because Satan doesn't know all things. And when he resurrected, he disarmed principalities. In other words, your faith and mine, in his efficient efficacy of his blood, disarms the principalities and powers that would keep you and I bound in sin and brings us to a place of freedom to walk in the newness of life. And so Paul's seeking to impart this truth to the Colossal believer, as the Spirit of God would want to impart it to you and I this morning. Don't let someone judge you in the food you drink. Don't let someone judge you regarding the things you celebrate, the festival or new moon or Sabbath. Don't let someone judge you in whether you uh, uh, attend church three times a week or once. Don't let someone judge you in terms of the practice of your own Bible reading and devotion. Don't let someone begin to place any kind of outward assessment about your spirituality based on things that you do outwardly. Because those outward things are just a shadow. The substance is Jesus. And the point this morning is where's your heart with Him? How's your heart with the Lord? Are you close? Is He close? Have, have you, are you keeping him close? Because, beloved, as we so adequately were reminded yesterday, what's going on right now in our world, in our country, in our state, Though Pastor Jack Hibbs said, "It's not about the pandemic anymore. That was a tool, a wedge, to open the door to something different and new of how society lives." <coughs> and the glorious news is that Jesus Christ, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he's asking and inviting and appealing and and wooing his people to is a deep, sincere sense of devotion keeping him close so that we can hear his breath in our ears and senses touch on our shoulder. That we're not walking so far away from him with him so much at the distance that he has to yell or shout to get our attention. But rather he has our attention every moment of every day. It's a church. It's not a building. It's a people. Ecclesia, the ones called out. It's a gathering. And his spirit at work in you and me, the church. In these last days in which we live, men will become lovers of themselves, lawlessness will abound. Are we not seeing that? You might say, oh, we've seen that for decades and decades. Yes, but again, you know, those of you who are there yesterday, you know I'm just touching a couple of items, but this is the first time in human history that the church has existed at the same time that Israel has existed. And so these things that that are calling to the deep and... Uh, real places of those who will name the name of Christ, his coming is at the door. His return is soon. And he calls to his people, watch. Be ready. I love it. He said yesterday, I think it was Barry, he said, it's not get ready. He didn't tell the church, he didn't tell his followers to get ready. He said, be ready. Are you ready? This morning, Are you ready today? Don't let anybody cheat you. Take your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. The shadow, outward things, or the substance, Jesus, which do you prefer? I know what my answer is, but I can't answer for you. I encourage you to ask yourself that question this morning. And let the Spirit of God answer it.